Amen. Thank you, Amy. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And I was listening to that song, and I saw Rick Ramey sitting here. I just thought how appropriate it was that Nancy went to heaven on Sunday. Because she it was such a blessing to us. Rick uh, promoted his wife, and the kids promoted their their mother to heaven. And those of you who had the privilege of knowing, and I tell you it was a privilege, it was a great privilege, those who knew her, uh, knew Nancy Raymond, knew what a blessing she was to the church, what a blessing she was to people she met, how encouraging she was. Many of you who were first-time guests here a couple years ago, you received baskets that she packed lovingly in her house to give to you, to welcome you to Berean. You know, she was promoted to heaven, and the things of earth did grow strangely dim, and the light of Christ's face grew bright. And so we grieve with you, Rick and family, and we rejoice with you at the same time. We'll keep you posted on Berean Journey page uh, for all the things that will come up, uh, no doubt, in the, in the days in which to come. For those of you who would like to be, and that's not a sorrowful thing, beloved. You know, I, I miss her, but I, it's, it's a joyful thing, too. Um, for those of you who'd like to have your little ones in an age-appropriate service up through grade four, you can be dismissed right now. And you can meet your teacher in the foyer and on downstairs for graded, serve, uh, graded uh, class time. And we'd love for you to be a part of that. But if you want to keep your little one here, you are also welcome to do that. We love children and you will not disturb us in the least, okay? Particularly me, you will not disturb me in the least. Now, if your child throws up on the person in front of you, that might disturb them. But I won't be, I won't be disturbed, all right? First Corinthians chapter 8, in order to conserve our time for the study of the word, I'd like to finish this chapter today, Lord willing, so you have to listen quickly, all right? So First Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, we're going to read through verse 13 and then dig right into the text. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, that's where we are, First Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. We know that we all have knowledge, knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. Verse 2, if anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. Verse 3, but if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Verse 4, therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and there is no God but one. Verse 5, for even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, verse 6, Yet for us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Verse 7. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Verse 8. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. Verse 9, but take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Verse 10, for if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he's weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? Verse 11, for through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. Verse 12, and so... By sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, verse 13, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Let's stop right there. 
Last week, we finished through verse 3, and although idols, as you know, if you've been with us, are the topic here, the focus of Paul's writing here has to do with the freedom that believers have in Christ, an overarching understanding of freedoms and limits to that freedom as it relates to the gray areas in the life of a believer. Those gray areas, as we said, defined really are things that the Bible neither affirms nor condemns. Those gray area things can be social issues, they can be habits, they can be pleasures, they can be amusements, they can be many different things. They will be things about which you will need to make a decision. It might be a decision for that time and that place only. It might be a decision that governs your life after that, after you've waded through all the different issues that concern that certain thing. I've shared with you a number of biblical guidelines that can be helpful in making those types of decisions, and you can get those from me if you'd like. Again, I'd be happy to provide them for you. And they help you to avoid the two extremes that can be uh, centered around freedom and the use of freedom. Extreme number one, as we saw last week, is just make a list of things to do and don't. Uh, There are Christians who live like that. They feel that their spirituality is based upon those areas that they either do or do not do, and it's easy to try to live in a spiritual manner that way, or at least appearance of spiritual manner. But as we said last time, refraining from doing things is not in itself spirituality. Walking in the Spirit is spirituality. A believer has to internalize the Christian life and the walk and and with the Spirit as the Spirit of God directs him, and there are reasons to say no to some things in gray areas. And as you work through each issue, you may find that they, uh, what may have been a yes to you in the past is a no to you now or vice versa. And that's not legalism. That's just walking in the spirit and looking at all the different things that impact those decisions. Then you have extreme number two, which is I'm free in Christ. I'll just do what I want. Everything that is gray, I'm free to do. And this is where we find the Corinthian church in this camp. Uh, of Paul's day, not all of them, but the the majority that have written to Paul and asked for some answers to some questions, they find themselves in that camp. If it isn't forbidden, I'll just do every bit of it, and I'm not going to worry about it. I'm free in Christ. There's no other consideration other than my liberty, in their opinion, and I don't really want to work through it all, and I don't have to work through it all. I'm not letting anyone put restraints on me, and I'm not putting restraints on me. There's that camp as well. Uh, But neither of those extremes are biblical because each thing has to be worked through and thought through in every society, every culture, every environment. There has to be a decision that has to be made uh, maybe only for that time and that place or maybe for uh, a decision that will govern your life. But over all of that and over all of those different things and those dynamics, wherever the believer may find himself, Paul gives a definitive limit to freedom. And we saw that last time. Uh, the first principle we saw right here in 1 Corinthians 8, and we'll see that reinforced again today, is who does my decision affect? Who does my decision affect? When I make this decision, who is it going to affect? Additionally, Paul would say, as you Corinthians ponder those who your decisions and freedom would affect, know your liberty has a limit as it works its way out in the church, and the limit to your liberty is love. And I think that we'll see that all kind of tied up together today as Paul wraps up this first portion of his introduction to these things. Now, he's going to illustrate them. We're going to go all the way through chapter 11, talking really about these same things. They're so important, so practical for the church, because they deal with gray area things, with freedom in Christ, what you can and can't do. You look in the scripture, you can either affirm that you shouldn't do it or affirm that you should do it. It's not a positive command. It's not a negative prohibition. It just falls in those areas. Every culture has those opportunities. And so I think you'll find the the 
uh, the uh, basics here very practical to your decision-making in your own life. Now, we saw last time that it was likely that the Corinthians gave Paul some reasons why it was okay to just do whatever it was that they were doing. And we kind of pull those out of the text because they seem to come out of perhaps questions that were asked of Paul. And all these reasons have to do with knowledge. So they understood some very important things. And Paul doesn't contradict them. What they understood is true. And we saw last week, so just quickly, reason number one, we found in verse one, we know that we all have knowledge. In other words, uh, we know that the Bible doesn't forbid it. As we talk about here specifically, food offered to idols, uh, if eating meat offered to an idol, that was the question of the time in this Corinthian church. Idols are everywhere. The, the social situations always included dedications of food to false gods. And so this is just a, this has permeated the church. It's cre- created some division inside the church. So Paul's dealing with this specific issue and he agrees. We know that we all have knowledge. Reason number two, verse four, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world. You can find that in your notes. You want to chat that down. We know that there's no, there, we know that there is only one God, so an idol isn't anything. Just put it that way. There's only one God. An idol's nothing, so we know that, so what's the problem? And that really kind of sums up where they sit. And then verse three, reason three and verse eight, we're going to see this in just a moment, is we know that we are not better if we do it or worse if we don't do it. It doesn't impact us positively or negatively, whether we eat this food that has been dedicated to a false god. So Paul reads their reasons, he agrees with their reasons, and he agrees with the knowledge that they had, and agrees that knowledge is a good thing. However, their knowledge was incomplete, as we saw last time. To sum up Paul's point, their knowledge is incomplete until it was fulfilled in love. They understood the right things, but there was something that was going to limit their ability to act on their knowledge. Now look at verse 3. We saw this, this is where we ended last time. If anyone loves God, he is known by him. And that idea there really is those that love God are most likely to be taught of God and be made by him to know as they should know. And so Paul's making this transition into love as this overarching principle as a limit to freedom. And the one who loves God and by that example then loves others and lets love be the limit to his freedom, God knows him and he's approved. That's the essence of that verse. If anyone loves God, he's known by him, known in a very positive way. In other words, God looks at the actions, you're doing what you're supposed to do. So Paul reminds them of their relationship to God and says, you know, don't think you've arrived just because you have knowledge. Knowledge and love are inextricable. Love and knowledge are cemented together, and they act together constantly inside the church. Love and knowledge have to go together, and that's why Paul is saying a church and and a believer must be theological and relational, both. You know the truth, and you act in love. He's free, and he's bound. Free in his faith, bound in his love. He must be able to know the truth, and then he has to hold the truth in love. That kind of sums up Paul's uh, position as he gets to verse 3. It isn't enough, then, to say, we know everything, so off we go with our liberty, and who cares who who sees or what they think about it. Uh, giving Paul that first reason, you know, we have the knowledge that the Bible doesn't forbid, if, uh, forbid us from doing this, uh, that isn't enough. Just having that knowledge is enough. Paul corrects them and shows them that the freedom will always think about love. Love is key to behavior. And you'll know that you're acting that way, beloved, when you are legitimately concerned about the gray area decisions in front of a brother or sister in Christ. When you begin to make those decisions and you're legitimately concerned, and the process includes what will brothers and sisters in Christ think and how will it affect them if I do this thing that I know the Bible neither forbids uh, nor encourages. It just falls in the middle. 
You'll know that you're acting in love where you're concerned about how you are going to affect someone else. When you're concerned about how his conscience is going to react to what you do. When you take the care to realize that what you're doing may offend him, may make him stumble, may make him weak, as Paul says in Romans 14, then you're really operating then in that dynamic that includes knowledge cemented together with love. Because knowledge without love makes you nothing. We ended with that last time, 1 Corinthians 13, makes you a big zero. So, that's where we ended up. Now, you're with us. If you were gone last week, you're caught up. Paul develops his process of correcting their abuse of freedom, picking up in verse 4. Look there with me in your copy of God's Word, uh, where we also see the second thing the Corinthians had knowledge about. Okay, the first thing we had knowledge about, we know the Bible doesn't forbid it. Second thing they had knowledge about is we know that there's only one God, so an idol isn't anything. There's only one God. An idol's nothing. So look at verse 4. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. Let's stop right there. That's a really concrete statement, and that's really great theology. Very simple. Paul says, look, I agree with you. In regard to this eating thing, we know this. And once again, we includes Paul and the question, the people who are asking the question, that an idol is nothing in the world. We know this. There's no such thing in the whole world as an idol. In other words, nobody's home. And we'll just use that to kind of sum up in just a few minutes. I'm just going to give you some examples. Nobody's home there, okay? Those gods are not gods at all. So, let's think about some of the religions in the world and some of the things perhaps you've seen if you've traveled or if you've read Hindus performing Vrat. In other words, doing something, some action to please the God or Yatra, a journey to a sacred place. Nobody home. You're performing the act for no one, okay? Or, more uh, perhaps close to home and perhaps close to our thoughts, Shia Muslims visiting the Jamkaran Mosque in Qom, putting a prayer to the 12th Ayman, that's the Shia Muslims Messiah, who is supposed to come and set up a... uh, Truth and ju- a, a, a world of truth and justice after, of course, they kill all Jews and Christians. Uh, this is actual Shia Muslim eschatology. So they come to this Jamkaran Mosque in Qom and they put a prayer to the 12th Ayman in a well that's located there. In fact, it was built around that well and they are praying to the 12th Ayman because supposedly he visited the place around the 10th century. Nobody home. Nobody's reading the prayer. No 12th Iman visited the mosque in the 10th century. It's built to no one, to nothing. Or perhaps if you uh, think more about Sunnis, you might be thinking about the Kaaba in Mecca during the Muslim Hajj. In order to be pleasing to Allah, the, there's a black stone there supposedly that was sent by Allah to show Adam and Eve where to build the first uh, altar. It's been enshrined in silver and As you can see, millions upon millions of Muslims try to touch the black stone. They work in a circle around uh, this Kaaba, and they try to, as they work in the circle, try to get closer to the center so they can rub their hand on it and be pleasing to Allah. Here's our summary. Nobody home. No God, Allah. Nobody's listening. It's for not. Some of the poorest in the whole entire world save their entire life to make the journey to visit the holy sites of Islam and give up and sacrifice no telling how many things, nobody home. Somebody sitting at a Buddhist temple praying for enlightenment, 
or millions of Japanese Buddhists praying to Amida Buddha that they may go to the pure land to the rest, to the west that was supposedly created by Amida Buddha. Nobody home. No enlightened Amida Buddha. No enlightened land to the west. No such thing. A Tibetan Buddhist practicing a Mo, it's a, it's a form of divination. Tibetan people consult Mo when making important decisions about health or work or travel. They cast dice in front of a Buddha, who's considered the Buddha of wisdom, and they ask for instruction and they have an interpretation of the dice and they act on the dice. Nobody's controlling the dice except the throw. Nobody home. Nobody's giving instruction. I have in my office some replica Navajo and Hopi Indian Kachina dolls, which were supposedly spirits of the gods. I'm from out west, and those things I've collected over the years. I have a Mayan chat mole from Chichen Itza. It was worshipped as a deity. I had them sitting on my office shelves, and, and I have some others. And my boys would come in when they were younger, and they'd say, What is that, Dad? Is that an idol? Very indignant, you know. Yes, it is, son. Well, why do you have it? And then I pick it up and I say, because that's all there is to it. There's nobody home. Hold it. It doesn't represent anyone. Nobody's hearing the prayers to this God. It's empty. No power. Nobody there. And so I wanted them to know that. The Hobies, of course, and Navajos would bring food and lay it before the Kachinas. I'm just going to tie it right back to Paul's time. Uh, Buddhist temples they bring all kinds of food sitting around in the Buddhist temple. The practice of the Hindu religion, there's called this practice called prasad, which literally means a gracious gift. It denotes anything, typically an edible food that is first offered to a deity, and then it's distributed in his or her name to their followers or others as a good sign. The prasad is then considered to have the deity's blessing residing within it. So in contemporary Hindu religious practice in India, the desire to get prasada, in other words, to to take part in the gift, to eat the gift, and to have darshana, which is a, a glimpse of the deity. Those are the two things that that uh, are the major motivations of pilgrimages, temple visits. They want to eat the food because it was blessed by the deity, and they want to get cuts a glimpse of the deity. And so they make the pilgrimage once again. No deity, nobody home. How about this? What about meat that is halal? Dedicated to Allah by Muslims. According to the Quran, all food that Muslims consume is supposed to be halal to Allah. So here's the question. Can a believer go to a Muslim country and eat in a restaurant owned by a Muslim who has dedicated all the food in the restaurant to Allah in halal? Or how about going to a restaurant owned by a Muslim in the United States, which has probably had all the food dedicated to Allah? And what's the answer to that, beloved? Of course you can. Because there's nobody home. And they're not dedicating it to anyone. There's nobody there. Although if you, you, you know, and we can see that clearly from the scripture, but if you go on discussion boards, you'd find that there are thousands of pages written about why you sh- no believer should ever go to a Muslim-owned restaurant and ever eat food dedicated to Allah. But doesn't Paul say, we know there's no such thing as an idol? Nobody's home? No such thing as an idol in the world. There's only one God. And that's precisely see Paul's argument in verse 4. Why not eat? There's nobody there anyway. Allah isn't blessing it because there is no God Allah to bless it. See? 
The stuff they bring in and they offer to an idol, the idol can't respond because there's no God there and there's lots of food, so no big deal. And it's cheap. We can buy it because it was given to the priest or it sat in the temple and now it goes out to the meat market and it's marked down because it's slightly used. And so we can buy it and it's a great deal, so why not? Now look at verse 5. For even if there are so-called gods, so Paul's, Paul's assuming that in some people's minds there's going to be other gods. Let's call them gods, in other words, Paul says. Whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods, many lords. So in other words, as you look at verse 5, according to the deceived, gods are everywhere. Okay? To the deceived, Allah is receiving their dedication and blessing the food. According to the deceived, in the Hindu religion, the prasad is what the worshiper wants to share in because the deity blessed it. And so they go on a pilgrimage in order to, if they can, consume it. So according to the worshippers of idols, then, the false gods are everywhere and doing all these things. Now, look, look at the beginning of verse 6. Yet for us, there is but one God. And again, that's great theology. It's exactly what Paul taught in Acts 19. So he had to agree with it. Remember Acts 19? You, you perhaps remember this story. This is a tremendous, it's a tremendous because the what had gotten back around was what Paul had been saying all along in every city. In Acts 19, verse 23, I'll put it on the screen. About that time, there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines to Artemis, that's the goddess Diana. And if you've ever seen, I've put it up before, but if you've never seen a, the goddess Diana, she's ugly. She's horrible. I mean, according to this guy, she must have, in their mind, beautiful, but she's ugly. It was bringing no little business to the craftsmen, so all the craftsmen are making these little mini idols so that people can take them home. They're made out of silver, and Paul is there. Uh, verse 25, These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. In other words, it's not so much about worshiping Diana and her worth, but that we want to make sure we can make silver idols and people will buy them. But we'll give him the benefit of the doubt. He's committed. Verse 26. So you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people. What's he say? Saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. And so when Paul comes to Corinth and when he teaches in Corinth for 18 months, he moves on and then as he begins to address the church in Corinth and they write him a letter and they say there's no God but one God, no other gods at all, nobody home in all these idols' temples. Of course he agrees with it because he's been persuading people about that for years. He just goes into the city, wades in there and just says, these gods are no gods. Stop worshiping them. They're no gods at all. And so obviously the big riot occurred here because they don't want Paul to say that. Paul preached this already. Of course, he agreed with the statement some of the Corinthian church had made. There's nothing there, no gods. That's Paul's message. And the concept's not limited just to Paul's perspective. Psalm 115, just so that you know, you know, Paul is pulling out straight out of the scriptures exactly what the Bible says. Uh, their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. Just speaking of those of the pagans and even of some Jews who have fallen into this foolishness. They have mouths, but they can't speak. They have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but can't smell. They have hands, but they can't feel. They have feet, but they can't walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Those who make them will become like them, everyone who trusts in them. So it ends with a little bit of mockery. In other words, the people who make them or trust in them will become as dumb and powerless as the false gods are. 
There's only, and you know, perhaps you're aware of this, there is a mosque right here in Lynchburg over by the airport. And you perhaps know that they're there on Fridays because that is their holy day, bowing down to no one. This is happening right here. Isaiah 44, 6, classic passage. I'll read the whole thing because it's so rich. Isaiah 44, 6, it says, Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, Two of the Trinity right there addressing the people. I am the first, I am the last, and there is no God besides me. Who is like me, let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order from the time that I established the ancient nation and let them declare to them the things that are coming. In other words, let the idols declare what's going to happen and the events that are going to take place. Do not tremble, do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? Are you, and you are my witnesses? Is there any God besides me or any other rock? I know of none. Verse 9. Those who fashion a graven image are all of them futile and their precious things are of no profit. Even their own witnesses fail to see or know so that it will be put to shame. So even those who worship them, even those who look at them, they don't understand anything. They can't tell you anything. Who has fashioned a God or cast an idol to no profit? Behold, all his companions will be put to shame. In other words, they build them so people will buy them and so people will worship them and continue to worship them and be brought into slavery with them. For the craftsmen themselves are mere men. Let them all assemble themselves. Let them stand up. Let them tremble. Let them together be put to shame. The man shapes iron into a cutting tool and does his work over the coals, fashioning it with hammers and working it with a strong arm. He also gets hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water. He becomes weary. And another shapes wood, extends a measuring line. He outlines it with red chalk. He works it with planes and outlines it with a compass and makes it like the form of a man, like the beauty of man, so that it may sit in a house. Surely he cuts cedars for himself and he takes a cypress or an oak and raises it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a fir and the rain makes it grow and then it becomes something for him to burn. So he takes one of them and warms himself. He also makes a fire to bake bread. He also makes a god and worships it and he makes it a graven image and falls down before it. Half Half of it he burns in the fire, and the other half he eats over it. He eats meat, and he roasts a goat, and is satisfied. He also warms himself and says, ah, I'm warm. I have seen the fire. But the rest of it he makes into a god, his graven image, and he falls down before it, and he worships, and he prays to it, and he says, deliver me, for you're my god. So the, the, the prophet just makes it a mockery. He says, listen, you plant a fir, and the rain falls on it and it grows up and then you cut it down and some of it you use to bake your bread and other you use to warm yourself and then the rest of it you shape into an idol and you fall down before it and say deliver me and that sums up idol worship doesn't it that sums up the worship of false gods they're nothing things built by humans the black stone the kaba maybe it's a meteorite i don't know But it certainly wasn't given by the Lord for Adam and Eve to build the first altar. And it certainly has no benefit for Muslim to come and touch it and somehow be blessed by Allah because there isn't an Allah. And there's no other God but one. And so all this is all throughout the scriptures. So Paul is just confirming to them, yes, you know this. This is true. There's no God but one. There's no idol. Nobody's in the temple. 
Habakkuk 2, verse 19, one of my favorites. Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, Awake! To a mute stone, arise! And that's your teacher? Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver. There's no breath at all inside of it. Then listen to this. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Big difference between false gods and the true God. False gods, nobody home, nobody there, no reality. True God, he's in his holy temple. Be careful what you say. That's the real God. He hears all that you, he hears all that you say and watches all that you do. So the reason the Corinthians are, give for eating meat offered to idols is, what's the difference? If we eat meat offered to idols when there's no idol there, what's the hassle about all of that? Now just as a footnote, chapter 10 verse 20, and we'll get there, but not today. Paul, we see Paul explain that even though there's nobody home, in the temple of the false god, pagan people don't realize this, but they're really sacrificing to demons. Because there's nobody home there, and it's false worship, so the demons just enjoy that. And they play with men. And I've told you this before as we've gone through different Bible studies, that what in essence happens is this. There's no God there in the temple. There's a false, it's a false God. You're not worshiping anybody, nobody home. So the demons just kind of inhabit that place, and they allow just enough to happen so that you think perhaps the God is actually working, just to keep you coming back. See, and that's deception. If you want deception badly enough, the Lord will allow those, even those fallen angels under his control to provide whatever deception you're looking for. But there's no God there. And so Paul tells them that, listen, there's, you know, they're sacrificing to demons. We'll see that discussion in chapter 10 and we'll save it for that. But part of the thought process then, as Paul is going to bring this up in chapter 10, determining what to do in this great area, particularly here in the Corinthian church, as it, as it concerns meat offered to idols, needs to incorporate that knowledge as well. That what's been sacrificed has been sacrificed to a demon. So Paul wants those in Corinth to realize that although there's no God there, what's actually happening is the demon's receiving the sacrifice. And so he's going to allow them to use that to make the decisions in the gray area issues. So the pagan religions are in verse 5. There's nobody home. And then we find the true God in verse 6. Look there if you would. True God's in verse 6. And here's what Paul says. Yet for us, there is but one God. The Father from whom are all things and we exist for him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things and we exist through him. Now, don't make the mistake of thinking, well, Paul's saying, but for us, that's fine for a Christian. As I, I witnessed to a guy a couple, a couple months ago who said, well, all the, all the Christianity and the rules about Christianity in the Bible only apply to Christians. If you're not a Christian, it doesn't apply at all. It makes no difference in your life whatsoever. You're set apart from it. You live under your own rules. Don't make that mistake, okay? Just, you know, Paul says, there's no other gods, nobody home, nobody in the false temple, nobody, okay? So it's not, you know, well, us against them, your idea of God and our idea of God. There isn't any of this, no false gods at all. There's only this, okay? So Paul's saying, listen, for us, because he's talking with believers in Corinth, for us, there is but one God. There is only one God, and we just read that, okay? And he's in his holy temple, so be careful what you say, all right? So, for us, there's only one God, the Father from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Now, get the reason why Paul says this, and I don't think it's to give a big treatment on the Trinity, necessarily. Paul clarifies some authority here, because we're going in chapter in verse 5 from pagan religions, where nobody's home, to verse 6. So Paul clarifies some authority. In other words, origin and purpose and order and blessing and life and dominion and power and mediation and all of those things, salvation, none of those belongs to the pagan gods. Okay, now, 
those who worship false gods think that these things belong to these false gods. And Paul's just clarifying, there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things and we exist for him, one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things we exist through him. So none of those things, origin, purpose, order, blessing, life, dominion, power, mediation, salvation, belong to the pagan gods. The gods of the heathens have no divinity in them because they don't exist. So nothing of real Godhead belongs to them. They are so-called gods in heaven and earth, gods many, lords many, but they're falsely called gods. The heathens had many such, and you've read them and you understand uh, a lot of this from Roman and and Greek history. Uh, Some gods in heaven, some gods on earth, some celestial deities, in other words, and they were of the highest rank. And then we had the terrestrial ones, uh, the men who made into gods, the, these were to mediate f- for the men with the celestial god. And, you know, you know the celestial god uh, had offspring and they become made by men. And then they become the mediator between men on earth and, and the celestial god, Zeus or whoever, Jupiter, who's, who resides in heaven. And so Paul's just kind of clarifying, listen, you know, terrestrial gods, you know, made into gods, mediate, you know, all that stuff, given responsibility, have dominion over earthly affairs. All that's false, okay? All the authority belongs to the Father. Origin, purpose, order, blessing, life, dominion, power, mediation, salvation. That all belongs to the Lord. And believers know this. There is but one God, the Father from whom are all things. That means that God, our Father, is the source or creator of all. Now, that's not to the exclusion of the Son or the Holy Spirit. But it is to the exclusion, and this is the reason why Paul puts it here, it is to the exclusion of false celestial deities pagans claim that exist, that made the earth and, and the sky or the water or whatever, but are really nothing and are really and did nothing. They are nothing, they did nothing, they own none of this that the Lord owns. Okay? There's one God the Father from whom are all things. Pagan deities did nothing, they are nothing, they, they know none of this. We exist for him, the Lord, the Father. We were created, in other words, for him. In other words, he is the purpose, he is the goal of our existence. Not for the purpose of false deities. Not to find enlightenment and tranquility with the help of a Buddha. That's not what you were made to do. You are made to find your delight in him. We were created for him. And one Lord, it says, Jesus Christ. The second person of the Godhead, the second person of the Trinity. Not to the exclusion of the Father and the Spirit, but in opposition to the numerous false gods and false lords mentioned before. You see? He just wants to make sure, listen, these are, this is who we worship, and these false gods we don't worship because they don't own anything, they don't do anything, there's nobody home, and none of this dominion belongs to them. See? One Lord Jesus Christ is the Lord of his people and of all people. Every knee shall bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every one regardless of your philosophy, regardless of whatever you worshipped before, everybody will acknowledge it. And then it says, by whom are all things, speaking of Jesus, and we exist through him. Describes the Lord Jesus as the mediator. He's the agent of God, both in creation and in salvation. So when Paul says, there is one God, the Father, and one Lord Jesus Christ, he doesn't mean the Lord Jesus Christ is not from God, and he's not doing a big treatise on, on the Trinity. He simply indicates the respective roles which these two persons of the God had fulfilled in creation and in redemption to the exclusion of all false gods that don't exist and have no dominion. That's why Paul uses it, I think, in his argument. So just to sum that up, you know, the universe is of God through Christ. And I think Hebrews 1, 2, and 3 make that very clear. In these last days, God has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, 
through whom also he made the world, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The universe is of God through Christ. John 1, 1 through 3, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. He's the agent of God in creation. He's the agent of God, and He's going to be the agent of God in judgment. We are for God through Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 18. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We are for God through Christ. Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to the adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. We are for God through Christ. The universe is of God through Christ to the exclusion of all false gods and all false worship and all false religions. Okay? So that's a great statement. And once again, I don't think Paul's purpose is to dig into the theology of the Trinity as much as he wants to finish the support of his argument. He's simply saying, I agree with you. There's nobody home. There's nobody there anyway. There's only one God, and that settles it. And everything is accomplished through the agency of Christ, who is the who is one with the Father. And if that's the case, then we might as well eat up. If that's the only things we have to consider, then just eat it. And it's pretty tough to argue with that argument. Because there isn't anything else. It's only the Father, through the agency of the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit, at work in the world, that all these things came into being. Okay? But Paul isn't finished with this. Look at verse 7. However, and we looked at this in the very first time we looked at this verse, and I drew this to your attention, because knowledge is very important. But in verse 7, Paul says, however, not all men have this knowledge. And that's a problem, isn't it? Because although we know these things, and so it's hard to argue with that argument, that all the stuff offered to an idol is nothing because the idol is nothing. So just eat it up. I mean, that's a pretty straightforward argument and it's good theology. The problem is not everybody has that knowledge. So as good as the argument is, there's a problem with all the reasoning. Not everybody has the knowledge. What knowledge? That an idol is nothing. That's that knowledge that not everyone has. They don't have the knowledge that nobody's home. Not every believer has integrated that into his understanding. The fact that there's only one God. Now, just to kind of illustrate that for you, you have some believers in the church that for every hour of their conscience life, since the beginning of their comprehension, they only knew false gods. So in, in this church in Corinth, you have believers that from the when they first began to understand what was going on in their life as a child, all they knew was false gods. Of course, they didn't think they were false. They thought they were true. And that was the reality of their life. God's everywhere, in everything, blessing everything, every social event, no matter what. It all had to do with a God somewhere. So here are these believers for all their lives up until salvation. That's all they have known. And they've bowed down to them. And they've seen people give testimonials to the gods. Every social event they attended, the gods were sought to bless the event. They've seen bad things happen, earthquakes, tsunamis, volcanoes, disease, all attributed to the gods. 
They've seen and likely participated in the worship of these gods by making use of temple priests and priestesses and prostitutes in the most uh, egregious manner. This has been their life. And then he's saved out of all of this. And, and his commitment to Christ is so complete and it's so beautiful, it's so fresh, it's so wonderful, it's so different. And he says, man, I, I don't want anything to do with that vile, evil life and all of those false gods, see? And somebody says, well, there are no real gods there. What's the big deal? I mean, in all your worship, nobody was ever home. Everything you attributed to the God, he didn't do. He didn't make anything. He didn't make you. He didn't bless your food. He didn't do anything. All that worship he did, you wasted your time. Not exactly the most sympathetic way to approach it. That's probably what was going on. That's why Paul had to deal with it. Corinthian church, a number of arrogant people there. Paul had to deal with being puffed up a lot. So, and, and here's the thing. They're believers, so they can understand. They've got the Holy Spirit resident now. So they may hear that in their mind. But here's the thing. They're never going to be able to say those words with true conviction without some time to mature. You see? And understand it. It's going to be a while before they can say, oh yeah, that's right. There aren't any gods there, are there? They never did anything, did they? I was deceived the whole time. Because for too long, they've been in this whole false system. For too long, they've been emotionally connected to false worship. For, for, for the knowledge to make its way into action and attitude, it's going to take some time. And so, it looks like that's what Paul's referring to. See, not everybody has this knowledge. Yes, it's fine to say, Paul says, that an idol is nothing. And it's right. But not everybody understands that, really. So, they can't handle that. See, and you can run out and you can eat up all you want, but you bring along that person and they may take one bite and all those feelings are going to come rushing back and they're going to say, oh man, this meat has been offered to Aesopus or, or whatever. And, you know, they start feeling guilty about it and they feel sinful and, and it's going to interrupt their fellowship with the Lord because they feel like they've just violated everything that they got delivered from and their conscience that's being renewed by God, see, to work correctly and cue on the right things is not at the point yet where they can eat it and not violate it, see? And the conscience is coming along as God wants it to. He's begun to renew. New things have come, see? But they're not at that point where it correctly measures their true freedom because the Lord's still protecting them from some things. Romans 14 and 15 describes them as the weaker brother. Not weak in relation to salvation, but weak in relation to what salvation brought to them. And they haven't understood it yet. And they're over-conscientious, if you will. They need the list. They need to be somewhat legalistic. The weaker brother has been taught that there's only one true God. Undoubtedly, he knows this in his head. But he's not able then to let go of a lifetime of belief in a false God. And he has to grow into that comprehension. Now, look at verse 7 again, if you would. There's some key words here, and we're going we're gonna to pick them up. And then we're going to kind of wrap up this passage. And you can see how this has kind of fallen off for us right into our hands. Because we've, we've laid the foundation. And you can see what Paul is saying. Okay? Now, verse 7 says, But some... Being accustomed to the idol until now. So Paul says, not all have this knowledge. Some of them have been accustomed to the idol until now. Eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. He is accustomed to the idol. Sunathia. It's the word for intimacy. Mutual habitation. It's a noun. It's very familiar with the habit of the idol. All the way up until now. So Paul says, listen, 
long accustomed to familiarity with false worship. And the idea, I think, that they're just new. Maybe they've been saved just a little while, but even, even until then, they're still holding some of those old associations, old thoughts, even though they're Christian. They can't shake the feeling that an idol is something real, and it would be wrong to do anything at all connected with idol worship. Because in their mind, all the way up until now, they're familiar with the idol, and they've been conditioned to believe there really is something there. So, but some being an accustomed, being a mutual habitation, being very familiar with, being intimate with the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol. So, in watching what the strong believer does, the one who understands his freedom in Christ, he's just going to go ahead and eat, and so the weak believer eats too, and then it says, Paul says this, and their conscience being weak is defiled. So, with this uncertain feeling, this connection to the idol that still makes its way through their thoughts, and whatever other gray areas that may be, beloved, as you interact with people and their association in the previous life and what you're allowing in your life just kind of fits right in there perfectly. The fact of the matter is this. They have some uncertain feelings about it. Still makes its way into their thoughts. There's, his conscience tells him, don't eat that. That little voice is there. Don't do that. That's part of, the, part of paganism. You can't touch that. You can't eat that. Don't do that. That's part of the stuff offered to Aesopus. And so his conscience tells him not to do it, but he sees everybody else doing it. And so he goes and does it. And Paul says, what happens to his conscience? It's defiled. Malinetai. Present, passive, indicative. In other words, his conscience is polluted and contaminated and stained by you. See? That's the passive part of the verb. It, because of what you did, his conscience is stained. See? His conscience begins to make him feel sinful even though he isn't sinful. See? Because there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus, according to Romans 8.1. But his conscience makes him feel guilty, and he begins to make him feel condemned, and he begins to make him feel like he failed God with all the accompanying sorrow that goes along with that. It could perhaps cause him to feel resentment towards the brother in Christ who set the pattern that he followed, and so it creates some division inside the body. It could push him deeper into legalism, making a whole bunch more rules so he'll never do it again, and maybe it will cause him to fall deeper into weakness. Maybe it'll set up some temptation for him. And there's all kinds of scenarios here. But the bottom line, maybe they'll go backwards into the trappings of the immorality that accompanied that old idol worship, see? Because those things are still in their thoughts because we have an unredeemed body. So he, he can get into a very bad situation all because he violated that conscience that God hadn't finished remaking yet and had him in that one spot where he needed to kind of listen to his conscience and not listen to you. If you remember, Paul said it would be better in the short term, to let them live by their immature conscience even if it's triggering incorrectly. Remember, as we looked at Romans 14 back in our Romans study... Here's what Paul said to the Romans. He said, listen, don't tear down the work of of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean. So once again, there's knowledge there. There's no things that are not clean. We're talking about Jews that had a, a, a diet restriction. Okay? All things are clean. But they're evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It's good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything by which your brother stumbles. See, it's always... It's always the weaker brother that has to be brought into focus. And the onus for taking care of him falls on the one who's strong. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself and what he approves. And that applies to both, both the weak and the strong. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he's eating not from faith and whatever is not from faith is sin. Violating their conscience can be sin for you and it can be sin for them, see? So knowledge says you can eat. Love says, think about how it affects somebody else. And then decide. Knowledge says an idol is nothing. Let's eat. Love says, wait. 
I choose not to eat even though I could eat because my brother believes it's wrong. And I'll bow to his belief until he matures enough to understand that. And you see, that's a constant, fluid, decision-making process that has to go on considering who you're going to affect with what you allow. See? Now, look at verse 8. Here's the third reason they gave Paul. Again, it has to do with knowledge. Okay? Verse 8. But food will not commend us to God. We're neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. Parastasi, future active indicative. Food is not going to commend us, parastasi, to God. Okay? In other words... We know that food isn't going to bring us near to God in the future when we're all done, okay? When we're done eating, it's not going to take us closer to God, and if we don't eat, it's not going to move us farther from God, you see? God, and here, I think we can sum it up this way, God couldn't care less what you eat, all right? Now, it doesn't mean that God doesn't care if you're gluttonous, and God cares if you're overindulgent, and God cares if you're wasteful, and all of that, because there are prohibitions and there are positive commands for those things. But God isn't waiting to give his favor to you if you eat the Brussels sprouts and the broccoli and withhold his favor if you eat the hot dogs and hamburgers and pizza, okay? He couldn't care less what it is that you consume, okay? There aren't any religious rules, no dietary restrictions, and and all the spiritual people aren't vegetarians, and all the godly people aren't Atkins diet followers, and that's the idea, okay? It doesn't matter where you land there, okay? Um, God released everyone to eat the lobster and the crab in Acts chapter 10. So that's what you're having this afternoon? You're good. Everything is to be received with thanksgiving according to 1 Timothy chapter 4. So, you know, the restrictions are off. It doesn't matter. God God couldn't care less what you eat. But the bottom line is, there's no spiritual consequence either way, eating or not eating. Paul says, you're right. You're not committing yourself to God by abstaining, and you're not making God mad because you ate, or vice versa. It's true knowledge. It's based on God's revelation. So why not eat? And again, the same idea. God may not care about what we eat, but he does care very much about his other children who are watching you do it. So verse 9. Take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Take care. Lepete. Now, this is, this is on you, okay? Um, present active imperative. Okay? Look around you, in other words. Perceive what's going on. You can't just kind of go through your life and just say, I have no restraints on me, no chains on me. I can do what I want. I'm free in Christ. It doesn't matter. No other considerations. Paul says, no, that's not how you go about that. There's something much more important than your appetite. Discern what's happening around you, he says. Look around. Is your freedom going to cause another believer to stumble in their walk? And the stumbling is an occasion to fall. And the idea is into sin. You set the example. They're going to follow it. It goes against their conscience, as we saw before. Same story. It may get them in a situation that they can't handle. Maybe they shouldn't go to that festival. Maybe they shouldn't go to that wedding or whatever. And you sit there, you're eating up, and if he or she goes, they can get sucked back down in for a while, getting caught up in, in all the immoral thoughts and all the immoral actions. And maybe uh, the, you know some strong ones in the Corinthian church were saying, hey, that's not my problem. If he gets sucked back in for a while, why is that my problem? If he can't handle it. And so Paul corrects that incorrect statement. They should be perceptive and know their brother well enough to know what God doesn't want, that God doesn't want him there because he's not as strong as you. His conscience is telling him no, and that's to keep him out of the area he's not ready to go into yet. See? So by your action, don't force him on what, don't force on him what God is not forcing on him. The Holy Spirit resides in him just like it does in you. So be aware that he's watching you. If he thinks it's wrong, then right now, it's wrong for you too, see? Even though it's okay. And even though it would be free for you to do it. 
If your brother in Christ is with you and he thinks it's wrong, then it's wrong for you. See. So let's wrap this up because you know where Paul's going with, with all of his scenario. Look at verses 10 and 11. For if someone sees you who have knowledge, so you're right, you know what's up, you've got the freedom down, you understand what you're free to do, all of that. Dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? And there's the question, it's rhetorical, and what's the answer to it? Yes. I mean, look at the context, everything that Paul says, listen, what you do is going to impact a weaker brother in Christ. So even though his conscience is saying, no, right now, he sees you do it, and he goes against his conscience, verse 11, for through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. He's ruined. Apolumi, present middle indicative. In other words, he violated his own conscience and brought, and, it, and I think that it's important, ruined is not really a good word here from the English. Because ruined has a finality to it that doesn't apply to believers. Because who who began a good work in you will be what, beloved? Faithful to complete it. So I think when we use ruined in the English, we think, he's done. You know, he's out. You know, he's on his way down and he's never recovering. And so I, I, don't, I don't think that's the, that's the way I think we should come across. I think really it's, it's reflexively. So in other words, what he's doing is, is coming back on himself. It's a loss of well-being, a, a spiritual stunting, a setback to usefulness, if you were, and devotion temporarily. It's more the sense of this to himself. He's creating this situation where he's going to have a hard time. He's going to have a real loss of feeling like he's doing what he should do. He's going to have a real loss, a kind of a spiritual stunting, a setback, if you will. And perhaps the Corinthians would say, well, he brought that upon himself when Paul had just said that. And Paul could say, brilliant, you know, Captain Obvious. I mean, understand this. I get that, that he's bringing it on himself. But you're creating the situation, see? When the Lord looks at the collateral damage, he's going to look at the strong believer who created the situation that allowed this this brother or sister to get into a situation they couldn't handle, see? By exercising your freedom with no con- considerations, you placed him in a position where he could violate his conscience. That's the issue. And we never want to be in, in a position. Keep this in mind. It's kind of market in your, as you think about it, as you deal with your friends and, and your loved ones, you don't want to be in a position where we're encouraging or forcing or advising people to violate their conscience. Believers have a renewed mind and are being renewed daily in Christ and are being brought unto sanctification. And some people are further along that route than others, okay? But you never want to get into a position where you're trying to convince somebody to violate their conscience. We want to teach believers to obey their conscience because that's the voice of the Holy Spirit leading them into areas that he feels they can handle and keeping them from areas that he feels that they can't handle. And so the conscience is God's traffic signal. And it keeps his loved ones off streets they can't handle yet. And as they mature, the conscience will give more and more green lights and they can travel on without stumbling. You see? Putting them too soon onto roads they're not prepared for is just going to make them, at best, legalistic, and at worst, spiritually stunted, with animosity, creates disharmony inside the church among believers. Verse 11, For through your knowledge he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. That last part, very important. That puts, that puts the hurdle really high, doesn't it? Take care, Paul says. How would you treat someone for whose sake Christ died? Because that's what he thinks about them. Okay? You mean, Paul, I've got a limit on my freedom? Yep. You may not agree with his view of life. You may not agree with what he does or doesn't do. 
You may wish he was more mature at this point than he is, but remember this, Paul says, verse 12, and so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience, when it's weak, you sin against Christ. So you're violating their conscience by what you allow or putting them in a position where they'll violate their conscience by what you've allowed in your life and they watch you and then they, they, they pattern their life after you and you sin against Christ. If you're not being perceptive, as we saw just a minute ago, take care, look around. If you're not being perceptive, you're going to find yourself in a very bad position and that position is you're sinning against Christ. Is that what you want for your life? That's the opposite of what we want, right? We don't want to sin against Christ, but in our exercise of our freedom, a chip on our shoulder, we're hoping somebody will knock off so we can just say, listen, I'm free in Christ, I can do what I want. You put yourself in this position. That's a very high hurdle, see? And perhaps, hopefully, higher even than singing against a brother or sister for whom Christ died. Pretty important, both of those. So this is where your unfettered knowledge of your freedom is going to lead you, and that's serious stuff. You want to have communion with Christ, not sin against Christ. So what do I do, Paul? And again, Paul gives this main principle that governs the freedom of a believer. Here it is, okay? We started with it, we're going to end with it. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, listen to this very clear statement Paul makes, okay? I will never eat meat again so that it will not cause my brother to stumble. Also, listen, I understand my freedom in Christ just like you do. I get it. There's nobody home. I get it. You offered this to nobody. It's completely free to eat at any time. We're free dietarily. There's no restrictions on us whatsoever. I get that. But listen, if my freedom, Paul says, violates a brother or a weaker brother or sister in Christ and causes them some difficulty in their walk, I'm sinning against Christ and I'm ruining a brother for whose sake Christ died, so I'm causing some setback to them. So it's okay. I'll just give up this right. I have the right to do it, and I don't care. I have the right to say I'm never going to eat it again. And I think that's a really great statement. I'll never eat meat again or fill it in, beloved. I'll never do X, whatever it is, again, if that's going to cause other believers to stumble or have trouble in their faith. Because... What's happening with other believers who are weak in Christ is way above what you're allowed to do, okay? So what's the deciding factor in a gray area? Who does it affect? How does it influence them? Not, you know, I don't care. I'm not putting chains on me. You know, he doesn't understand. He's got lots of problems. You know, I don't get to be an extreme number two just because he's an extreme number one, Okay. It's because he has a bunch of big lists. I don't get to be extreme number two and just say, forget it. Okay, he's living by his list. I'm not going to worry about it. Okay, you have to be worried about it. Instead, I'm going to ask, this is in your notes, well, what I do defile their conscience? If I do it, will they stumble? If I do it, will I ruin them? Will I cause them a big setback? Will I cause them some serious internal problems and their struggle with their relationship to Christ. And if the answer is yes to any of them, then I'm singing against Christ. So my decision is, here it is, I won't do it because I love them more than my freedom because Christ died for them. And that puts the bar much higher than what I can allow in my own life. Okay? That's a lot to absorb, I know. Let's bow in prayer and ask the Holy Spirit to help us. Lord, we thank you today for 
an opportunity to be in your word. We are so grateful for it. We're thankful for Paul's teaching here, so practical for us, uh, both in the real uh, life experiences that we have and we watch on TV and we read about of people who really believe somebody's home in these temples and tabernacles and really believe they're praying to someone and offering something to someone or something that really exists when there's nothing. And so many are deceived. And Father, our hearts are burdened about that. As we do our own little thing in our own little Christian world and we allow those who are around us who are captured by all kinds of things to go by us with no mention of the gospel and the freedom that comes in Christ. And Father, I pray that we'll be burdened again by our knowledge of these things and, and reminding ourselves of these things that we'll be burdened to be about the Great Commission. As we did last, uh, as we did Saturday, opportunities to share our faith abounded. Many I saw did that. Thank you for my opportunities as well, Father, uh, to be, to, to give people the knowledge they need, the message of Christ's work on the cross to bring about salvation. We're so grateful for those opportunities. But Father, also we want to be aware that this passage particularly is written to the church, written to believers, written to conduct among believers. So uh, important, not a suggestion, hey, if you want to, you know, kind of limit yourself this way. Paul's definitive statements there at the end make it very clear that what we do impacts people. And if it impacts them negatively and they're believers, then we have an obligation as those who understand our freedom to limit what we do for the sake of others. Not that the church will stay weak, not that the church will stay immature, but that they all can be brought along under the teaching of the word to a mature man, to the image of Christ, Ephesians chapter 4. And so, Father, we're grateful, so grateful for your teaching here, and it's so convicting, too, because perhaps we haven't even thought of any of these things lately in the things we just do. And perhaps there's an application to our children and what they watch us do And so, Father, I pray that you'll just, by your Holy Spirit, make the applications needed. By your Holy Spirit and and the teaching of your word, help us to modify our behavior in such a way that uh, we can stand before you and say, I have not caused another believer to stumble to my knowledge. And I'm okay with not doing any of these things inside my freedom in Christ, inside these gray areas, if it causes someone else to have trouble. So, Father, help us be able to make those statements just categorically, with no restraint. We thank you for an opportunity to worship today. We thank you for the time we spent uh, reading your word aloud. We thank you for the time we spent giving of what we have and recognizing you're the the one who gives it all. We thank you for an opportunity we got to spend with Alex in prayer and in worship, submitting ourselves before you in humility. And now the time in the word just now in teaching, we might be corrected and instructed in the way that we are to go. And Father, I pray that you'll help multiply it in our own mind, apply it, help it not to slip out as we slip out of here but to be brought back to our thoughts more and more as we work our way through these very important passages. And we give you praise today. We thank you for Jesus. We look forward to his return. We wish to live in such a way as servants who are doing the things the Master said. As we are bond slaves to you, and willingly so, help it to show in the priorities we make in our lives. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus, and all God's people said, Amen.